Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. N is for the 1980 Floor Show. The 1980 Floor Show was held at the Marquee Club in London from the 18th to 20th of October 1973 with David Bowie as the protagonist. Broadcast in the States by NBC on November the 16th in the music series The Midnight Special. So this is the first live appearance of Bowie after he'd announced a farewell to Ziggy at Hammersmith, wasn't it? It was. On the 3rd of July. It was a sort of uh, momentary resurrection of uh, Ziggy Stardust in the form of a real rock musical. OK, so he didn't have a very promising start well, the 29th of September 1973, as covered previously in this series, so George Orwell's widow, Sonia Brownell, she refused to give Bowie permission to use the title 1984 for a musical. Uh, I mean, yeah, and Bowie did say at the time, didn't he, when she's horrible, she's the most yeah. pompous woman I've ever met. <laughs> but then it transpired that he never actually met her. He was just he that got... angry. Oh, oh so miffed. So the lineup was derived mostly from the albums of Aladdin Sane and Pinups, although the most important piece was perhaps the medley 1984 Dodo, which was announced as a preview of the future adaptation of 1984, based on uh, George Orwell, of course. The show, whose title was a play on the words referring to 1984, not difficult to work out, really, managed to capture a moment of transition between the glamorous sci-fi of the rise and fall of Ziggy and the darker sort of dystopia of Diamond Dogs, which came out six months after the show. Yeah, so the cast will be David Bowie voice, Mick Ronson, and guitar, Trevor Boulder bass, Ainsley Dunbar battery, mm. Mm. Uh, Mike Garson piano, Mark Carr Pritchard on guitar, and the astronauts, which is Ava Cherry, Jason Guest, and Jeff McCormack, also known as Warren Peace. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. And guests uh, Carmen, Marianne Faithful, The Trogs, and Amanda Lear. So the track listing, you just mentioned it, and I have to say, yeah, when Dodo came out, because he, he was doing the rounds quite a lot early on, on yeah. like, even on cassettes, you know, mm. on the bootlegs that came out in the 70s, but I love Dodo. Yeah, it's great. I think it's great, but 1984 and Dodo, that worked for me, but obviously it got he got lost in translation Yeah, of somewhere. course. Uh, then he did Sorrow. Valerius. Everything's All Right. Space Oddity. I Can't Explain. His tears Go By. This is by Marianne Faithful, of course. Then Time. A wild Thing. The Gene Genie. Rock and Roll Suicide, which didn't go out for reasons we'll tell you later. 20th Century Blues, performed by Marianne Faithful. Can't Control Myself, performed by The Trogs. Strange Movies by The Trogs. And I Got You, Babe, performed by Bowie and Marianne Faithful. Okie dokie. So, uh, now I, I've gone into... Um, <laughs> and I could have probably gone a little bit further into the dark web 
I don't even really know what that means, but, no. I, see, but I see it on detective films. And right, okay. <laughs> anyway, I, 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 all I managed Hang to... Get... <laughs> You're researching Bowie on the dark web. Okay. <laughs> what is a dark web? I don't know, mate. Just don't so, go on it. Right, well, you've been watching Zed Cars as well, haven't you? <laughs> uh, but it, this, is, this is an Italian translation, and it isn't brilliant. No, it isn't, <laughs> is it? Well, I'll let you start, shall but, I? Um, like, if there's any humour comes out of it, then it can only be a good thing. All right. Uh, the idea of the show with David Bowie as protagonist came to Bert Sugarman, producer and creator of the weekly programme of NBC, The Midnight Special, which since the beginning of the year had been offering rock specials. So Sugarman got in touch with the singer who began to think of a type of very theatrical show in which to perform a futuristic context. Yeah, it continues. When the project became public, British newspapers wrote that the Americans had secured the pop blow of the year and complained that the event would not be broadcast in the UK. Only one piece was aired during an episode of Top of the Pops, but the entire show never had any television distributions and was never made available for home video in England. I love the way that you went through pop blow of the year without even questioning it, because I, I think that's got lost in translation somewhere. Definitely, I just wasn't sure it was an Italian term. But it's fine. Yeah. Uh, regarding the location, Bowie claimed that at the time the available clubs would have been many, but the marquee was at the top of the list because the musicians were hanging out that area pretending to talk about business. <laughs> that's great. But more than anything else, the girls. I wanted to go back there because there were so many good memories that bound me to the club. Now we've done this in the marquee, haven't we? We have, haven't we? Because he loved playing the marquee because he well he got he was in an excitable state bob he was yeah certainly because of a lot of american tourists and they really went for the r&b singers of the day didn't that's they? what bowie said yes. okay all right so admission was by invitation only and the audience included 200 members of the newly formed international david bowie fan club as well as personalities from the rock world and a select representation from the music press at this point i can't believe you got invited to this I did get invited because I was oh. I was a, a member of the fan club, but at this point in time, I was 13 years old. Oh, Mark. Oh. Um, or 12 years old, actually. Yeah, you'd be 12, wouldn't you? Uh, so would that be... Um, oh, now then, so did you keep the invite? Oh, do you know what? I mean, I've still got some of the fan club stuff. So, oh, yeah, I mean, okay. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I've got so much stuff that, right. you know, I'd have to just wade through it. But, uh, I mean, and, and at this point in time, I do need to say I've got absolutely nothing compared to some of the Bowie completes oh, out there. Mm. Uh, the stuff that is uh, in people's collections mm. just blows my mind. But anyway, among those present, in addition to his wife, Angela, and his son, Duncan, who was just over two years old, was Tony Visconti, the composer, Lionel Bart, the singers, Dana Gillespie, Long John Baldry and Wayne County, now in Wayne County mm. uh, as we know uh, it was a member of Andy Warhol's Pork and various other things yeah, these yeah. days Jane County yes that's right so as for the cast and the guests the 1980 floor show saw Bowie's last appearance with Mick Ronson and Trevor Boulder the two spiders from Mars of course who'd survived that transition the other musicians were Ainsley Dunbar who played with John Mayall and Frank Zappa and who replaced the third spider Mick Woodmansey Ella Woody and guitarist Mark Carr Pritchard former member of the Arnold Corns project mm, the choirs were the work of the Astronauts a trio created by Dave David in honour of his new girl, Ava Cherry, who'd met in New York at the beginning of the year. Uh, completing the trio were Jason Guest and Jeffrey McCormack, as we mentioned before, a.k.a. Warren Peace, who'd participated in Aladdin Sane and Pinups. And Jeff McCormack, of course, Mark, would continue working with Bowie and co-wrote the uh, tune Rock and Roll With Me, of course. He most certainly did. The show was also attended by the Trogs, who became famous in 1966 with the song Wild Thing, and Carmen, a Los Angeles Hispanic group that merged progressive rock and flamenco, and whose first album, Fandango 
Heroes in Space was produced by Tony Visconti. That sounds like a diversion oh, from yeah. Spinal Tap, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know that at all, I admit. A surprise addition to the concert was the presence of Marianne Faithful, starlet of the 60s, and former girlfriend of Brian Jones and Mick Jagger, who appeared in a, well, a, a nun's suit in the translation, but we should just call it a habit, I think. I think so. Complete with chin strap and a bare back. Uh, the singer duetted with Bowie in I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher and performed a couple of tracks as a soloist, including A Tears Go By, which had been a massive success for her in 1964. Yeah, I mean, I do remember uh, Trevor Boulder saying that he was a little bit distracted by Marianne Faithful's garment. Like yes. you say, it was opened at the back. I shall say no more. Presenting the evening was a mandolier, just having appeared on the cover of the album For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music, and she presided over the show as a kind of Marlena Dietrich of the space age. Like Marianne Faithful and Ava Cherry, she also had an intimate relationship with David Bowie around about the same time. So the shooting, the filming began on the 18th of October with performances by Carmen and Marianne Faithful. Uh, most of the stuff reserved for Bowie was resumed the following day in which the Trogs also performed. The first song to be filmed was Everything's Alright, which is the old Mojo's cover, wasn't it? Uh, taken from pinups, and Bowie's performance went on for 10 hours because, due to the small size of the marquee, each song was played and filmed at least five or six times to allow the few cameras there were to be moving around and get the right angles and shots. It must have really frustrated Bowie that, because uh, as we know, again, just from the research that we've done and, and having listened to particularly Woody Woodmansey, mm. but they go into the studio... And they'd record it, and that Bowie would say, "Yeah, okay, great." Yeah, and the band would be like, well, I, "I think I could do better than that." No, that's it. And and Woody did say, actually, Bowie was right because if they did go at something again and again, mm. it would just get worse, and it would lose. It, it might get a little bit more correct in its arrangement, but it would lose a spark and spontaneity. So to do this must have really done Bowie's yeah, nut. It must have been like torture. So the result, here we go. According to the judgment of Bowie himself, was shot badly. Although the fans were obviously excited to see their idol perform for so long. On the third and last day, the set was closed to the press and the public and was dedicated to the choreography of the show's title. It was on the final day of recording, whilst performing, Mick Ronson's guitar went out of tune and then he snapped a string and Bowie left the stage in a bit of a huff. Oh dear. So, scenography, choreography and costumes. The stage and backstage were completely refurbished and the walls and ceilings painted black to the horror of club manager Jack Barry. So, <laughs> the funny thing is that I played the marquee a few times. Yeah. And... It was black. Right. Okay, so the backdrop, the wall, was black. It had right. the marquee written on it. And I seem to remember the dressing rooms were black as well. Right. There was a lot of, well, there was certainly lots of graffiti on there. Mm. My man, a little bit kind of sketchy, that. But it was definitely black. I'm just wondering, having read that, because I'd never heard this before, whether Bowie painted it black, well, not him personally. Yeah, but... It, and then they just left it that way. In which case, and I performed on a stage as painted by Davy Bowie. Well, not well, well, yeah, but I get exactly where you're coming from. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder what it was like. I need to see some shots of it. Pre-Bowie, I suppose. Pre-73. Well, you know, I mean, we, we've seen the 1984 show and I've got it on DVD. Yeah. A very good copy. Thank you very much indeed. Got Not on. legal. Come and arrest me. No, nice don't, one. don't. I've got rid of it and it wasn't mine anyway, Your Honour. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the you can see the opening shot of there, the, all the, the, the letters being yes, you yes, know, yes, panned yes. out by yeah. human figures and stuff uh, with the black backdrop. So, he obviously, he had to do it. Yeah. He, he just had to do it. He could, you know, there's no point in putting Laura Ashley wallpaper oh, on there, that, is it? That wouldn't have worked, would it? It'd be that way would, too messy. It would not. Work, I so. always thought black was the default colour of the marquee, so 
I could, I'm happy to be wrong. Seemingly not. Yeah. Seemingly not. Yeah, I didn't know either. But anyway, Matt Mattox's elaborate choreography with an opening sequence in which the bodies of the dancers melted into a series of paintings to form the title of the concert indicated that Bowie's theatrical musical aspirations were growing. Mick Ronson and the rest of the band were visually overshadowed by Bowie's theatrical presentation. Assisted by a group of dancers dressed in cobweb-covered suits, Bowie staged a new parade of costumes created by uh, Freddie Baretti, including a red beret edged with ostrich feathers, a sleeveless jumpsuit decorated with tongues of fire and a suit net with a pair of golden hands sewn onto the chest. In reality, the latter, used for Gene Genie, had a third hand that covered his crotch, but as Bowie recalled later on in 1992, it was removed at the insistence of NBC. He said they told me we can't show it, it's subversive. So that was obviously because he's got a hand holding his cobblers. Yes, that's right. So, but I mean, they uh, they caused themselves more problems. The recording was further delayed when it was realised that the suit revealed more than necessary. <laughs> and the crew were then educated so that Bowie was framed from the belt up. So, right. I mean, there's some uh, undercarriage, you know, uh, dilemma there, isn't there? If they hadn't right. left the hand on there, then it wouldn't have happened. So, no. you know. Anyway, for everything's all right. all right, David wore bright yellow pants, a purple satin top, black leather jacket and high heel boots, while for 1984 Dodo, he sported the typical Ziggy Stardust look. Sorrow, meanwhile, was filmed in the studio with David in a white suit, singing to Amanda Lear on a giant chessboard, while for I Can't Explain, she wore a shiny red corset and thigh-high boots in PVC, and two species of black feathered wings on her chest to represent the angel of death. I wonder what that was about. So yeah. the last performance, the duet with Marianne Faithful of I Got You Babe was filmed around about 10 o'clock in the evening. Bowie warned the audience, it's nothing serious, it's a game. And David's costume, I sound a bit more like Larry Grayson than our Bruce <laughs> Falls. Melvin Hayes. Sorry, yeah, anyway. sorry mate. Sorry, David. Uh, David's costume was the same as I can't explain while Marianne Faithful wore the nun's habit that we talked about before. That's right. Bowie remembered in 1993, they didn't transmit it to America. It was seen as something beyond the limits of decency. Madonna, smell the liver. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does hell? that mean? Don't know. Uh, let's look at the VNA exhibition, which is painful uh, part of the proceedings on several occasions for you, Bob. It you, is. You, um, you didn't make it. No, I didn't make it, but I'm going to rub my nose in it again now. But I'm I mean, happy if, to you know, be rubbed. If such a thing could exist, I would happily grant you one of my three visits, Bob. But <laughs> these things can't be done, can they? Well, the thoughts there, and I appreciate that very much, but you're going to have to tell me what happened again. Well, I mean, the the, uh, the, the costumes were there. That yeah, Bowie, sure. um, and there's one there with the flame on, which I was never that kind of convinced by. I thought yeah. that looked a, li- a little bit like undercooked. But of course, it was the the web and hands mm. that was there, and the uh, and the uh, the ostrich feathers yes. was there as well. Uh, but it was yeah. I mean, to see them in the flesh was just oh. great, and you know exactly what they were. I mean, you look at the uh, the the Japanese print, you know, the woodland creatures and yes. all of those different yeah. ones. You see them so many times, and he wore them on so many shows. But those, you know exactly where they were. They were from the 1984 yeah. show, and he wore them once. And so, oh god, this- brilliant to see. They're so specific, aren't they? Regarding the changes imposed by NBC for the costume worn during the Gene Genie, Ken Scott claimed that Bowie did his best to ruin the shoot. I think they eventually made a collage between the two, but it was very bad, and in the final version, we can all see it very well. I agree with Ken, actually, Bobbert, but uh, I'm going to take another little diversion here, because uh, it was a couple of years ago, I went to a leaving do in London. Right. Uh, and I was in a cab the following morning, and the cab driver just said to me, oh, uh, what are you in London for? You know, you're going back to Euston, you're on your way home to Manchester blah 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 and uh, I said yeah it was a, a colleague's leaving do he said alright oh, where do you work I said the BBC he said oh, well, what do you do I told him and then he said alright oh, what kind of music do you play I said well it could be everything from like you know Paul Robeson and Bo Diddley through mm. Bowie through to bands that you will never have heard of and he went oh right okay yeah 
I did a bit of work with David Bowie. I was like, right. Doing? Well, you what, mate? And uh, it transpires that he was a roadie for Bowie. I don't know exactly how much he did, but he was certainly on the full production of the 1980 Floor Show. Wow. And I've rung him a couple of times, and he's probably got my number in his phone, and I'm thinking, no chance, Bubba. Um, but I haven't gotten through to him. But if I do get through to him, then we'll update this podcast, All right. okay? And, 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 and if anything transpires after what we're just recording now, it means we've got hold of him. Uh, but the bottom line is he said it was great because he just got all the gear. For a roadie, you get mm. all the gear, load it all into the marquee, mill about in case anything goes wrong, but you've just got basically three-day jolly oh. whilst Bowie's doing all this with the trogs and Carmen and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he said it was a brilliant experience, and I was, ju- I was just kind of like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big kid. We know that. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm sat in a, in a cab here with a bloke who worked with Davey Bowie on the 1984 oh. show. Those kind of things thrill me. And I'm 57 years old, Bob. I need help. Long may they thrill. I'd be thrilled as well. We need to track him down while you do, don't you? We've got his number. Dave. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. N is for the next day. So this is the 24th studio album of Bowie's career, released on the 8th of March 2013 on his ISO Records label. The album itself was only announced on Bowie's 66th birthday, the 8th of January 2013, when his website was updated with the video for Where Are We Now? And it was Bowie's first album of new material in 10 years since reality. So it was a big, big deal, this. And surprised fans and media who believed he'd just retired from making music. The album was streamed in its entirety on iTunes days before its official release. It is funny because um, I was having a chat with Blam just the day before it came out. Total Blam Blam. Yes. Mark Adams, who, who uh, runs DavidBowie.com. Yeah. And and not a word was said. I mean, it wouldn't be. He wouldn't no, tell me that. Um, but I'm absolutely sure that he knew about it. But when it when it dropped, it really was a, a, a gasper. Wasn't oh, it, like, it was. What? Yeah. Oh, what, what, what? Just a, a great example of that stage management that Bowie did throughout his career. Brilliant move. It was. Uh, uh, well, uh, sadly, as we know, uh, Black Star as well. Just, yeah. you know. But anyway... Yeah. Uh, 
the next day was met with critical acclaim and earned Bowie his first number one LP in the UK since 1993's Black Tie White Noise and it was nominated for the 2013 Mercury Prize and Best Rock Album at the 2014 Grammy Awards. Recording of the album took place at the Magic Shop and Human Worldwide Studios in New York City. Bowie and producer Tony Visconti worked in secret alongside long-term engineer Mario J. McNulty recording the album over a two-year period although Visconti actually said that it only spent a couple of months actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's about three months wasn't it yeah. really in real time uh, Visconti recalled that the album began with a one week recording session he said Sterling Campbell was on drums I was on bass David was on keyboards and Jerry Leonard was on guitar by the end of five days we demoed up a dozen songs just structures no lyrics no melodies and all working titles this is how everything begins with him then he took them home we didn't hear another thing from him for another four months right no rush then okay so Bowie would disappear with the music to make sure he was on the right track and then bring the band back together to take the next step when he was ready Visconti described the recording sessions as intense but they stuck to regular hours the last time we did all nighters was young Americans well who were fueled by various substances and a lot younger so I'm sure they could keep it up but you know Uh, during breaks from the studio Visconti would walk the streets of New York listening to music from the next day on his earphones so, I mean, he gave a lot of interviews obviously because Bowie wasn't doing any interviews for this uh, and I love this because Visconti said I was walking around New York with my headphones on looking at all the people with Bowie t-shirts on they're ubiquitous here thinking boy if you only knew what I'm listening to at this moment it's funny isn't it because now I mean it's one of those things whereby you, you go if you're walking past a department store and you will see t-shirts hanging up there for toddlers yes and there will be t-shirts of the Ramones and Led yeah. Zeppelin and, ACDC ACDC yeah. and, and Bowie more and more and I think Bowie is probably you know an example really of um, one of those people one of those artists that we're just talking about who are the people who buy the t-shirts actually know and like I, I'm absolutely sure that there's a lot of like 14 13 year olds running around with their Ramones t-shirts yeah, like, exactly. I know somebody uh, it was a friend of my daughter's I think um, but who somebody who just thought that Ramones was like leave it was like a label <laughs> okay you know um but i was talking to a musician the other day uh i won't mention him uh but uh, yeah he said that his daughter i think she was i think she's like 11 or 12 oh i know yes 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 mad yeah. on bowie yeah absolutely completely and utterly yeah. mad on bowie but he's like the beatles in that respect as you say you know you're gonna buy the stuff it's not that you don't know him you really love him Absolutely. That's how it is. Absolutely. Okay. So um, Bowie also used some of the musicians he'd worked with in the past, including Earl Slick, who recorded his parts for the album on the uh, July of 2012, Gail Ann Dorsey, who played bass guitar, and Sterling Campbell on drums. And they both worked with Bowie since the 1990s, also contributed to the album. Uh, Dorsey also recorded vocals for the song If You Can See Me. Saxophonist Steve Elson, who'd worked with Bowie since the 80s, also plays on the album. There's also a story that Robert Fripp had been invited to play on it, but he couldn't do it due to other commitments. Uh, Fripp felt the need to kind of come out and deny all this, saying, I haven't spoken to David for a while and I wasn't approached, adding, I'm not angry at all, nobody's hurt, I'm not upset, I'm just keen for clarity. Yeah, and well, you don't want to, you wouldn't want it to be said by all and sundry that you've been invited and didn't bother. Of course not. So course it, not. it didn't happen. Uh, Bowie took great pains to keep the recording of the album secret, requiring people involved in the recording to sign NDAs. 
Bowie had to change recording studios after one day when someone at the studio leaked the rumour that he was recording there. So he moved to the Magic Shop, which ran the studio with a skeleton crew of only one or two employees on the days that Bowie was there. Columbia Records' UK PR firm learned of the project only a few days before the album was released. Brilliant. So cloak and dagger. So a Canadian band Metric almost uncovered the secret recording sessions when they arrived at Magic Shop uh, unannounced in 2011 and Bowie's saxophonist Steve Elson, I've just mentioned, said he was tempted to reveal all. Well, he didn't. Mm, He didn't, thankfully. So when it comes to the music, Tony Visconti told the enemy that next day is quite a rock album. That's not exactly selling it, is it? But, you know, it is many things. The first single was the ballad Where Are We Now, a track which Visconti described as the only track on the album that goes this much inward for him. Visconti suggested that Bowie chose Where Are We Now as the opening single because people had to deal with the shock that he was back after a 10-year absence and that the introspective nature of the song made it an appropriate choice. Fair enough? Absolutely good call. The opening lyrics for Where Are We Now reference the name of a train station and street in West Berlin, Nürnbergerstrasse, where Bowie used to live. A video accompanying the single includes props such as a dismantled photo frame lying discarded on the floor in the opening shot and a two-headed doll with the torn faces of Bowie and a voiceless counterpart pasted onto it. And of course, I, there is the uh, Song of Norway t-shirt as well, yeah, so which, is, which does relate to the uh, film that Hermione was in, in which uh, she left Bowie yes. and ran off to film it and fell in love with somebody else on the shoot, didn't yeah. she? So, I mean, it was uh, very unusual for Bowie, wasn't it, this, to reveal yeah. so much. I don't just mean, you know, in, in the video for this. I mean, it's just not like him. Often it'll just be a little bit kind of more elusive, but he almost he's almost nostalgic here, isn't he? That's what he's doing here. It seems to be, yeah. So Tony Orsler, who is the video director of where are we now? Uh, spoke to me around the time of this. He said, first, I wondered if I'd be able to live up to a project like this, given the gravity of the situation, uh, the surprise of coming back after 10 years of silence. But I listened very carefully to what David was saying, and he already had this crystallised, fully articulated image for the video in his head. There are a few things that we teased out together, so it's a kind of overlapping collaboration that gave birth in my workshop. Those dolls you see, for instance, those kind of doppelganger electronic effigies are a trope I've been using in my videos since the early 90s. Uh, and Bowie, I mean, Bowie would have been well aware of it, loved yes. it, and then yeah. just uh, deigned to work with him. Yeah. So David Uzo was in 97 for his 50th birthday party at Madison Square Gardens. I was invited to that, Bob, and I, oh, and I didn't go, oh. uh, which was the first time he really did anything together. So he took me to his studio where he had them out of storage and said, let's just use these. It was wonderful to see the birth of the song riding in on some kind of electronic magic carpet in my crazy studio. That's great, isn't it? The Stars Are Out Tonight was released as a second single from the album in February 2013 and the songs themselves cover a wide spread of subjects and largely observational Valentine's Day is about high school shooter, I'd rather be high related the story of a World War II soldier and Visconti said, if people are looking for classic Bowie they'll find it on this album, if they're looking for innovative Bowie, new directions they're going to find that on this album too Visconti added that 29 tracks were recorded for the album and suggested that some of the material left out of the next day could appear on a subsequent record Visconti speculated that Bowie could return to the studio to produce a new album later in 2013, but that didn't happen, mm. as we know. The cover art for the album is an adapted version of Bowie's 77 album, Heroes, with a white square uh, with the album's title obscuring Bowie's face, designed by Jonathan Barnbrook, who also designed Heathen and Reality and follow-up Black Star. The obscuring of the photograph represents forgetting or obliterating
in the past. So the original cover image, of course, was shot by Masayoshi Tsukita. Barnbrook explained the cover, saying, if you're going to subvert an album by David Bowie, there are many to choose from, but this is one of his most revered. It had to be an image that would really jar if it was subverted in some way, and we thought heroes work best on all counts. The next day itself received acclaim from the music press. Andy Gill in The Independent called it the greatest comeback album in rock and roll history, saying the work is as good as anything Bowie had made. The Guardian awarded the album four stars, deeming it thought-provoking, strange and filled with great songs. Time Out called it an intelligent, memorable and even a little provocative addition to Bowie's discography. The NME said rather than reinventing Bowie, the next day absorbs his past and moves it on. Now then, one of the few dissenting voices was that of Mark Fisher in The Wire. He called the next day an album of quotidian mediocrity saying it was entirely undeserving of its wider claim and that the wave of hyperbole it generated points to a wider malaise in contemporary music because it proved that anything of low artistic merit could achieve success via artfully timed PR. Which I have to say, you know, in the cold light of day is crap. It is crap. (laughs) Meanwhile, in the US, the New York Times called the album Bowie's Twilight Masterpiece, while Billboard wrote, no matter where Bowie takes the music, and there are some moments where it seems headed off to some off-putting territory, he finds a melodic hook to swing on. The alchemy is almost magical. So not only was it great to listen to, it did very well in the charts. It got to number one in the UK album charts, selling uh, nearly 95,000 copies in its first week alone, and it was Bowie's first number one in 20 years, as mentioned before, since Black Tie White Noise. In the States, the album entered the Billboard chart at number two with first week sales of 85,000 copies and you know, we are still you know, looking at the times when people were just downloading stuff for free yeah. so that is remarkable yeah. it also topped the charts in Belgium Croatia the Czech Republic Sweden Switzerland lots of places oh yeah uh, Bowie was insistent there'd be no live performances in support of the album with Visconti telling the enemy he's fairly adamant he's never going to perform live again one of the guys would say boy how are we going to do all this stuff live and David said we're not he made a point of saying that all the time. However, Visconti later clarified that he did not say that Bowie would never perform live again, only that he won't tour for this album. Visconti told the Daily Telegraph that Bowie had not ruled out the possibility of several live shows, but instead decided to focus on making records. Yeah. So I think, yeah, uh, it was one of those when it really where uh, Tony, I think somebody put two and two together with what Tony had said and uh, taking it out of context, but yeah. and Bowie probably wasn't very happy about it. Yeah. Also, I think it was difficult for Visconti, wasn't it? He? he became the uh, spokesman for this whole album, didn't he? he, was, he you got to and you've got to say the right thing, haven't you? Yeah, as well, all you've the got, time. when you've got somebody of like the, you know the uh, proportions of Bowie and and it was the world fame and everybody mm. kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next. You just say something that could be misconstrued and all hell. Oh slip. yeah, <laughs> it's the on. same with me, Bob. You know, yeah. I, mean, I just have to say the wrong thing about where I'm going. The oh. pap- paparazzi and. I've seen him crouching by your hedge oh, there, Mark. Uh, as for the track list, uh, we've got the next day. <laughs> crouching by the edge. I wonder who did that. Okay, so moving on. You've spoken to uh, some of the contributors, haven't you, Robert? Yeah, just after the album came out. In fact, it was so hush-hush that they didn't really know what they were doing, whether these recordings would ever see light of day. Right, okay. So uh, Zachary Alford, for example, he said the album is reminiscent of his early records in some ways. If you listen to The Man Who Sold the World and God Knows I'm Good, they're evocative of folk or country. We had a couple of tunes that were country tunes, and it's definitely a new millennium record he's not trying to make it sound like his old stuff although there was one song oddly enough that was from the lodger sessions uh, the working title being born in a ufo my jaw dropped he said when we first played it because i could immediately hear dennis davis in there my hunch is that it's now called dancing out in space on one song i changed the beat and davis said i like that and went in a new direction he said i'm going to change the lyrics it was originally going to be a song about prostitutes at the vatican <laughs> so you get an idea so when i talked to these guys the album hadn't been released 
release. So this would have been probably, I think it would have been sort of, you know, oh, the, the week the album came out. So it was all a little bit up in the air, you know, so wow. they hadn't seen the finished product even. Uh, Gail Ann Dorsey said, the main thing I noticed about David now was that he seemed really comfortable in his own skin. There's nothing to prove anymore and he's not chasing anything. So he had a kind of relaxed, total confidence, just enjoying the process of making the music. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen him this settled. Jerry Leonard said to you, Rob, mm. at times we were tracking a song and he was writing lyrics at the same time. It was almost distracting. One time he called me back in, just trust me and bring a favourite guitar. He and Tony had sourced a 70s Marshall stack from a picture of a rehearsal room back in the Mick Ronson days. It was always so satisfying to play electric guitar with David. He was the only singer I've ever worked with who asked me to turn it up. Sounds great, Jerry. Can you turn it up? That is great. I mean, I've been playing guitar badly, not like Jerry Leonard. He's a genius, but, you know, yeah. playing playing uh, loud is like, you've you got to do it, man. But I'm just wondering, from that, does that mean that they found an original Ronson Marshall stack? Or? It, it sounds like it, yeah. It really does, yeah. I, I didn't mean, look into that. I mean, ooh. Okay, yeah. It that, does. that is amazing. Because I know somebody who's got some of the Stones Marshall stacks from, oh, yeah. the, from the early 70s. And they're oh. very recognisable because quite often they'll have something sprayed on them. Right, they? yeah, sure. And so uh, you can imagine that Bowie would probably know the people out there who collect all mm. this kind of stuff. And so, but the thought the thought of Jerry Leonard playing through Ronson's right. original Marshall stack, that's, that's, uh, that's yeah, chilling, isn't it? That's tantalising. Okay, another big blast from the past on the next day with Earl Slick. Uh, when you've been working with somebody that long, even when you haven't seen them, for a while, he said, you fall right back into the routine in a heartbeat. First thing that me, David, Sterling Campbell and Tony Visconti did was cut three brand new tracks from scratch. I ended up just doing what came naturally and it worked. The whole thing was so secret that Jerry Leonard didn't even tell me he'd been in before. We'd had coffee together a number of times. I said to him, you bastard! But we all understood that's how it was with this record. That's David's call. After 40 years of working with a guy, you have to respect that. Yeah, you wouldn't cross Bowie, would you? No. I mean, he knew what he wanted and the bottom line was that if you let him down... Out the door. He won't ask you back again. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. N is for New York Dolls. So the New York Dolls were an American hard rock band formed in New York City in 1971. Original lineup: David Roger Johansson, sometimes spelled David Johansson, born January 9th, 1950. He's an American singer, songwriter and actor. He's best known as a member of the seminal proto-punk band the New York Dolls. He's also known for his work under the pseudonym Buster Poindexter. He is. So his early life, born in New York City borough of Staten Island to a librarian mother, Helen, and an insurance salesman dad, who'd previously sung opera. Uh, Johansson's family was Catholic, his mother was Irish-American and his father was Norwegian-American. And Johansson began his career in the late 60s as a lead singer in a local Staten Island band called the Vagabond Missionaries. And later, of course, as we know, a singer-songwriter in the New York Dolls. So you've got Sylvain Sylvain, who's actually called Sylvain Mizrahi, uh, born the 14th of February 1951. Uh, he's a guitarist and, yes, member of the New York Dolls. Sylvain was born in Cairo, Egypt, to a Jewish family, but his family fled in the 1950s first to France and finally to New York. And they lived on Lafayette Avenue in New York, but later moved to New York City in the neighbourhood of Regal Park in Queens whilst he was still a child. And he has dyslexia. He attended Newtown High School in Queens and 
Quintano School for Young Professionals in Manhattan. Oh, OK. Yeah. Johnny Thunders now. Born John Anthony Kenzali, 1952. Died April 1991. Better known by his stage name, of course, Johnny Thunders, rock and roll guitarist, singer and songwriter, who came to prominence in the early 70s as a member of the Dolls. Later played with the Heartbreakers and as a solo artist. He's born in Queens, New York, where he first lived in East Elmhurst and then Jackson Heights. And his first musical performance was in the winter of 1967 with The Rain, as in uh, R-E-I-G-N. Shortly thereafter, he played with Johnny and the Jaywalkers under the name Johnny Volume. Not keen on that one, Mark. Right, Johnny Volume. OK, I like it. At uh, Quintano School for Young Professionals around the corner from Carnegie Hall, in fact. OK, so in 1968, he began going to the Fillmore East and Bethesda Fountain in Central Park on weekends. His older sister, Marianne, started styling his hair like Keith Richards. In late 1969, he got a job as a sales clerk at Dina's Leather Shop on Bleecker Street in the West Village and started trying to put a band together. He and his girlfriend, Janice Cafasso, went to see the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden in November 1969. And, this is brilliant, they appear in the film Gimme Shelter. Wow, I didn't know that. That's um, news. Need to have a look at that and try Whoa. and spot him. OK, in London, after the Isle of Wight Festival, the following summer, his girlfriend Janice fell ill and they flew home. Back in New York City from the UK towards the end of 1970, he started hanging out at Nobody's, which is a club also on Bleecker Street in the village. It was near there that he met future dolls Arthur Kane and Rick Rivets. So he joined their band Actress, which later, after firing Rivets and adding David Johansson, Sylvain Sylvain and Billy Mercia, became the New York Dolls. It was then that he adopted the stage name Johnny Thunders, inspired by a comic book hero. I wondered if it was the Johnny Thunder, you know, the kinks tune. Yeah, but, but yeah. seemingly not. No. Uh, Arthur Kane. Kane now, Arthur Harold Kane, born February 1949, died July 2004, best known as a bassist in the New York Dolls, found a member of the Dolls in 71 and an integral part of the band until he was forced out in 1975, shortly after the departure of Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan. So in 2004, after decades of estrangement from Dolls singer David Johansson, Kane rejoined the surviving Dolls, Johansson and Sylvain Sylvain, to rehearse and play a reunion concert in London, which I went to, uh, which was the subject of the 2005 documentary New York Doll which if you watch it oh. is an absolute heartbreaker. Uh, in addition to his playing bass, uh, Kane was known for his subculture fashion sense and for uttering original aphorisms in his uniquely toned voice. What does that mean, Bob? Don't know. I mean, he played, <laughs> I know that he, he was tall anyway and he wore those platform yeah. boots which took him up another eight inches and I also remember he, he, did a, he did some gigs with his arm in a plaster cast as well. Did he really? And do you know one of the stories, I don't know if this is like a, a apocryphal or not, but the story is that he used to hold his breath while he was playing bass and so he would never do these long continuous bass runs because he would just fall over. Right. He, so he would, he would play, a, 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 he'd be like dun 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 dun. Right. <laughs> a bit wow. like when you're doing the crawl when you're swimming right. you know you put your head down you do what you got to yeah. do and then come up for a section <laughs> so uh, that that's the story anyway oh that's remarkable brilliant he's so statuesque though wasn't he his nickname arthur killer came was inspired by the first article written about the dolls in which the journalist described his killer bass playing kane also said he was inspired by the adversary of the 1930s science fiction hero book rogers a villainous character called killer kane funnily enough brilliant 
Italian. Okay, Kane was born in the Bronx, New York City, the only child of Erna and Harold Kane. Arthur was close to his mother and his Aunt Millie, who used to like to listen to Elvis records. This is so sweet. The first word that he learned as a young child was, Record! Oh, brilliant. Uh, when Arthur was 17, his mother died of leukaemia. His father was an abusive alcoholic. And when he quickly remarried, Arthur left home for good. And he graduated from Martin Van Buren School in Queens. He first played bass in the band Actress, along with other original uh, dolls, Johnny Thunders, Rick Rivets and Billy Mercia. Uh, Billy Mercia now, so this is a tragic tale, isn't it? So born October the 9th, 1951, died 6th of November 1972, the original drummer for the New York Dolls, born in Bogota, Colombia, raised in Jackson Heights, uh, New York. So both Mercia and Sylvain both attended Quintano School for Young Professionals in the late 60s. It was at Quintano's that they met Johnny Thunders, also a student there. They made their musical debut in 1967 in a band called La Pox. That's not good, is it? Uh, Messiah was a fundamental ingredient of the original Doll sound and played during their now legendary series of weekly shows at the Mercer Arts Centre. While on a brief tour of England in 1972, Messiah was invited to a party where he passed out from an accidental overdose. Yeah, terrible story. Yeah. Uh, hadn't they just played at Wembley with the faces? Yeah, I think that was it, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. In an attempt to revive him, he was put in a bathtub and force-fed coffee, which resulted in asphyxiation and death. He died before the New York Dolls recorded their first album and was later replaced by Jerry Nolan in 1973. In the meantime, the final gig of their tour at the Manchester Hard Rock was cancelled and the band flew back to New York City. Messiah can be heard playing live with the Dolls on Lipstick Killers, the Mercer Street Sessions. Uh, Johnny Thunders wrote a song about him called Billy Boy and, of course, the song Time from Aladdin Sane references Messiah and his untimely demise, Billy Doll, of course. We'll look at that in a short while. Uh, Rick Rivets, born George Federick, is an American guitarist and after the Dolls, he formed a band called The Brats in 1973. Right, okay. So the New York Dolls, for those who don't know, which won't be many uh, people out there who like Bowie, there'll be a lot of cross-pollination, but maybe some of the younger people that we talked about earlier who love what Bowie did uh, won't know that they were really, really hugely influenced uh, by the Shangri-Las, a lot of the girl bands, weren't they? Yeah. And, of course, the Rolling Stones. And we'll talk about exactly uh, where Bowie comes into the frame in a short while, won't mm. we? Yes. So the Dolls were definitely one of the first bands to be labelled punk, although Lester Bangs coined the title aiming it for the Stooges who didn't take it as a compliment I don't think it was meant as a compliment well <laughs> punk has a different connotation in the States anyway doesn't it uh, the Dolls first two albums New York Dolls 1973 and Too Much Too Soon 1974 of course uh, amongst the most influential records in rock they were infamously uh, managed also by Malcolm McLaren towards the end weren't they they were and of course you know the Sex Pistols were designed not actually in the, in the New York Dolls image but you know with the same kind of thing wasn't it this great Svengali and creating a stir. It was definitely from the same uh, stable because I mean, if you, even if you look at the uh, the the attire of the pistols, particularly down to the the ripped clothes and the safety pins, that was uh, all the work of Richard Hell. It was, yeah, definitely. Who, of course, was in the Neon Boys and in the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunder. So yeah. it's no coincidence. Richard Hell was really the template for the punk scene he over was. here. I think that's been recognised, yeah, hasn't that's it? Lifted directly, certainly. Okay, so let's start looking now into the relationship with David Bowie because I mean, a lot of people would look at the New York dolls and go oh yeah uh, they, you know they were influenced by Bowie but like, as we know we've just been through it they formed in 1971 yeah you know yeah. some Ziggy hadn't kicked in no they weren't influenced by the man who sold the world they weren't influenced by hunky dory and so I mean you know there's just no doubt about it they were ploughing their own furrow weren't they definitely and they, as you mentioned you know they were taking the cues from another era for a start how many bands were kind of dressing like that and yet really kind of references all that late 50s almost kind of bubblegum pop wasn't it you know it was bubblegum 
pop, and they were produced by Shadow Morton, who produced exactly. the Shangri-Las as well. But not only that, they were definitely hugely influenced by the Rolling Stones. Yes. But then they took that and, and married it, really, with the outrageous side of what Andy Warhol was doing in New York at the time, with the pork crowd, which That's would right. have been, you know, uh, Wayne County, Jane County, and all of those, yeah. Surinder Fox, people who were hovering around in Bowie's world. So there's more chance that Bowie was actually influenced by the New York yeah. Dolls than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be the case, hasn't it, really? And also, I think it did that great thing that Bowie did just by taking, assimilating a lot of different styles, when it almost, you know, cherry picking from different cultures and time frames and putting it all together in a way that people hadn't seen before. I mean, the dolls were doing that, as you say, just ploughing their own furrow, doing it just under their own roof. And they did eventually end up on uh, the old grey whistle test, which infamously was that the, uh, the situation where Bob Harris turns around and goes, mock rock. Yeah, that's right. And he compared them badly to the Stones, didn't he? You he know? did, yeah. Um, but yeah, that is an infamous episode. You mentioned Bowie and uh, Aladdin Sane and Time. Yeah, so the lyrics of Time, uh, Time in Quaaludes and Red Wine, demanding Billy Dolls and other friends of mine, take your time, sings Bowie. Yeah, okay, so uh, let's have a look at the Bowie connection. So for the Bowie timeline then, Tuesday the 19th of September 1972, Bowie and his band at Entourage, including Mick Rock and his wife Sheila, go to see the New York Dolls at the Mercer Arts Centre in New York City, part of the Broadway Central Hotel at that point, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, after the show, Bowie meets David Johansson's girlfriend, Sarinda Fox. Now then, um... Yeah, we know, there's an alarm going off there, isn't there? She was an original member of Warhol's Port cast, and she had a great barnet, which ironically, Angela Barnett, Angie Bowie, stole from her. Yeah. Which, for her part, Sarinda stole Angela's fella, which was Davy Bowie, as we know. And the story is that Andy started seeing Billy Mercia around about the same time. So there's a right old uh, love. That's not even a love triangle. No, it's, it's, a, it's a love square. Yeah, maybe. A, oh, anyway, so Fox was, as previously discussed, the star alongside Bowie of the Gene Genie video shot at the Mars Hotel in San Francisco. And there are photos of Bowie and Johansson in 73, 74, possibly even 75. So it seems, you know, they became firm friends despite all the love shenanigans triangle or rectangular or otherwise. okay so i think we have established a case for bowie quite possibly being influenced or certainly certainly a fan of the new york dolls the a to z of david bowie was written and presented by rob hughes and mark riley recorded and edited by howard knock with social media graphics by jason reed if you'd like to review or rate this podcast well that would be much appreciated in the next episode Outside, Oxford Town Hall, the Old Grey Whistle Test. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.